this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we're talking today about a subject that I have, unfortunately, a lot of experience with, and that is Same. messing up at work. Um, I bet a lot of y'all can probably identify with that. It's a, it's something that happens, but it's not something that is talked about very publicly. No one wants to be um, very open about the times where they, you know, did the wrong thing or should have done this and they did that or, you know, completely missed something or completely messed something up and, you know, made everything bad. Right. And we should. We should talk about our failures. Failure is a really important part of success. It's a really important part of any process, and we should be embracing failure. Um, and I definitely have had my fair share of work problems. I'm making myself sound like a really like great, desirable person well, to join your team. I feel like we've just been sharing war stories in preparation of this. You, it's like we're, we've been one-upping each other. Like, you want to hear about how bad I screwed up this one time? It's been great. Yeah. It feels cathartic. It is cathartic. I mean... People really, it, it resonates with people when you talk about your your failures in a concrete way. And so in a former life, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, my job involved putting together trainings for activists and organizers and campaigners to figure out how they could use technology to be these badass, you know, political strategists and operatives. And one of the things I found is that when trainers and mentors shared their stories of Times, concrete times where they mess something up or they right. miss the mark. Those are the stories that stuck with um, the, the participants. And like, you know, I think I think about those stories anytime I hit send on a big email. I think about, you know, mm-hmm. stories where people have told me like, well, this was a horror story. I, my heart is like starting to be a little faster. Just t- just thinking about the pressure of being a professional strategist and hitting send on emails on it's behalf of other people. So much pressure. Have you had? Tell me about. Well, before I tell you about my big <laughs> screw up, I'd, I, I also want to underline what you were just saying about the importance of specificity. There's a big difference between when we talk in cliche about, you know, lean into the discomfort of failure. Learn from your mistake. Yeah, it's okay. And, you know, that those sort of like, as someone in the professional development space, those cliches are easy to fall back on because. We don't always have time to get specific about the many ways in which we've all learned from messing up. But it's important to remember, even though it is in the past, the more specific you can be in sharing how you overcame that challenge, the more relatable and inspiring it becomes, not just these like blasé, cliche statements that are not very empowering. In fact, if you look at the narrative arc in storytelling that we see throughout history from Shakespeare and Aristotle, you know, all the way through to how we talk about, you know, politicians in the public eye sharing their come up story or hip hop and the whole idea of getting bossed up, that whole idea, what underscores the, the, the phrase bossed up is you overcame something. And so in many ways, we as human beings are innately inspired by someone else's failure stories. When you get specific about how you overcame and dealt with obstacles and challenges, in some ways, everybody actually loves an underdog story. But it depends on how you tell it, doesn't it? Totally. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the times in my life where I've heard people that I think of as like very successful or, you know, badasses in, in my field, when those women especially yes. are vulnerable enough to tell about a time where they missed the mark, it just normalizes the whole thing. And you think 
you know, even the person that you think of as, you know, your um, career idol or, yeah. or whatever, like even they have dealt with this. And I'm reminded of Jess Morales. Shout out to Jess Morales, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you may know her as if you if you um, were paying attention to your phone during the election and you were pro Hillary, you might know her as Jess from HFA. Um, Jess is a real person who I she know is. in real life. She's know amazing. And love. I met also through NOI. Yes. R- shout R- out. Hashtag RIP NOI. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so Jess is someone who I think of as like being at the top of her game professionally in our field. She has, has led really important campaigns. She's been profiled in, in publications like Vogue magazine and the Washington Post about how great she is at sort of leading these movements online. And she is just a real badass. Yeah. And I'll never forget at, a, at an NOI training she, that I was a participant in. So I was not like leading the training. She told this story of working for, I think it was Emily's list when she was just starting out in her career. And she was sending out a mass email and she had done the the heading so that it would personalize to whoever was getting this email. So if it was I was getting it, it would say, Dear Bridget. If you were getting it, it would say, Dear Emily. Yeah. And she tested it and she got the test back and it said, Dear Jess. So she was like, Great. It Send works. it out. Yeah. Perfect. What she didn't realize is that everybody who got this email, this we're talking thousands upon thousands of people. Probably millions. But yeah, I don't know what their list is like, but it's I was big. gonna say millions. Yeah, yeah it's probably yeah. huge. Um, all got this email that said, Dear Jess. And so Emily's List is already an organization that has a woman's name yeah. in it. So people were Emily, just... Emily? Jess? Yeah, What's happening? People were very, very confused to the point where this became a hashtag, I am Jess. Um, <laughs> and I just love that, you know, if that had happened to me, I would be mortified. And I'm sure she was mortified. Right. But being able to talk about it in this concrete, specific way of, here's what happened, here's what I did in the aftermath, and here's what I learned. Almost every time I send an email, I think about that story. I think right. about I am Jess. And it's right. helped me tremendously. Yeah, I love that. And I'll be the first to admit that I have done exactly that, except I, I remember I was being paid to write and set up and send emails that were for fundraising purposes on behalf of my clients um, before I started Bossed Up way back in the day when I was a digital strategist. And I got a link error, which is like one of the worst, because when you send someone with a bad link, they can't donate. The whole reason you sent them this email was so they could donate, which means the only thing they can do in that circumstance is unsubscribe. So you just set your whole email list up to give you a good reason why they should unsubscribe and send you angry responses. And I remember realizing my mistake, taking it to my boss, my boss being very angry, and then the client being very angry and then myself having to fix it and thinking to myself, there are so many ways in which in this job I've been set up to fail. Like there are so many ways to screw up. There are so many ways to mess up that it, it was daunting. It made me want to, it almost paralyzed me. Wow. Have you ever felt that like rush of blood to your cheeks? You're like mortified, humiliated. You're supposed to be a professional at this and you know, you made a, what, it was a very basic mistake and there wasn't anything you could say about it other than, listen, there's no one to blame but me. I screwed up and it just feels so like you just want to crawl under a rock and maybe never do this ever again. Like you're like, I can't even handle this right now. <sighs> that thing that you're describing, I've been in that situation so many times and I think that's what, that's why it's important that we talk about work failure because right. you shouldn't feel paralyzed when you make a mistake, right? Making a mistake is normal. It happens. Right. If you don't have systems in place where that is under, like where that is understood to be something that's going to happen, might happen, might occur, um, 
you know, that's really a better system. And so I feel like when people describe feeling paralyzed, feeling shame, shame, it's and, really this, this spiral of shame that starts to suck you down. Exactly. And then you start wondering, am I my, my mistake? Am I'm I not, good enough? Am I good yeah, enough? Can right. I do this? All of that. And, um, I, my, I, I mean, I've made so many mistakes in, in my, in my come up, you know, working. Um, but one that really sticks with me is when I was working at a media company doing social media for a very large, uh, media outlet that you've definitely heard of. Um, it will not say the name. I don't know. If, I don't know if there's a legal thing. There's so no legal I don't thing. know. You can definitely say the name. <laughs> All right. Let's just say it was the network with the where, where their big star is someone whose name rhymes with Machel Manow. <laughs> I just basically said it, but all right. I love it. I so I didn't say it, but. But figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Google it. Google it. Yeah. Machel Maddow. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Um, and you know, this was a, a, for me, this was, this started as kind of a dream job, but you know, especially when you work in social media or some sort of like media, these things, like mistakes are going to happen, right? Like if you are, you think you're logged into your personal Twitter and you know, you're out and you are accidentally logged Girl, in yes. to the, the brand Twitter, yes. these things happen. And so when I was there, it seemed like we never talked about the times where people tweeted the wrong thing, even if it was a low stakes, you know, right, a right. low stakes error. We just didn't like it, it seemed like it was an environment where mistakes did not happen or or could not happen. And so when inevitably you tweet the wrong thing, it just seemed like world like the world was ending because there was no protocol. And what would have been better is if you know, on day one, we say, here's what happens if you if you make a mistake or if yeah. you tweet the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. Here's how we handle it. Here's what it looks like. Here are the fail safes that we have in place to avoid it. And when it did happen, because inevitably it's going to happen, right. it just felt, you know, you just felt so bad and so guilty and so incompetent. But what's worse is that you felt like you had done something that should never happen. And that, no one has ever done before. Exactly. It felt yeah. like a, to- you felt like a total anomaly. And right. I think particularly as a woman of color and, and I think as women in, in fields that are male dominated, you can start to feel like your boss is thinking, Oh, well, this is why, why, why we don't hire people yeah. like that, right? Because women or women of color or whatever, like the, they make these mistakes mm. and you really feel like you become your mistake and it becomes so hard to overcome. I think that's such a great point. And it's something that's grounded in research that we're going to, we're going to cover in a little, in a minute. But I also want to add that I've seen this done better elsewhere. Um, and I've learned from companies who have fail-safes in place. So when I started my own company, now, as we've learned and grown through our <laughs> mistakes, through the many wonderful mistakes we've made, um, what I now have as a part of our onboarding process is one of our how-we-do-what-we-do kind of norms that we cover with our staff. We have a rule um, that's known as bad news doesn't age well. So when you do make a mistake... The thing that is most important is that you tell someone about it oh, ASAP. That could have, I mean, and just lifting that right. as a thing is so important. Just having, like, having a boss who says, here's what happens when things don't go well, or models that behavior when things are not going well, um, to me has been so refreshing and humanizing in the past that I really wanted to be that boss for other people. And nobody's perfect whether you're managing people or being managed by someone or neither, but just having a 
uh, sort of institute a protocol that says when something bad goes down, the last thing I want you to do is feel shame and be quiet about mm. it. Cause, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get better when you're dealing with it alone. And it certainly doesn't get better when you try to cover up your mistakes, which then becomes a whole other mistake in and of itself, as we've seen play out in the political arena a million times over. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, I would love to hear from our listeners on, have you seen or been a party to uh, an organization who handles mistake making well? Or have you been, you know, have you ever had a protocol in your office that makes it feel okay um, to talk about when things are not going so well? Because, you know, nobody feels great when they screw up. And you also, I'm not saying like women should go out there bragging about all the ways they messed up, right? We don't need to dwell on our mm-hmm. mistakes, but we do need to feel um comfortable talking about our career performance separately from our self-worth. You you know, your success is not equivalent to your self-worth. And the more we can actually embrace that in a country that's so fixated here in the United States on our identity being wrapped up in our careers, I think the better. I think that's so, so true. And I think, you know, I was really lucky to spend um, a couple of months working for a Silicon Valley, like, startup in- environment. And that was the whole thing was a learning environment or a learning experience for me because I had never worked in Silicon Valley before. I had never worked in a tech space before. But something that I really took away from that was that they really did. And I don't know if this is like a Silicon Valley thing or what. It's a startup mantra. Right. Yeah. Where if you mess something up, they kind of embrace that in a way I had never seen before. Really? And honestly, I, I only worked at this company for a while and it was great. But, um, you know, this idea that they really wanted you to try things and that failing at things is part of trying things and they'd rather have you out there, you know, taking risks and trying new things and have it pay off and also have it not pay off than have you play it safe. Yeah. Lear- learning to embrace that yeah. was very uncomfortable for me, but once I did, I did some of my best work. Like I'm like the work I did that I'm most proud of came from that environment where they were like, "Yeah, if you mess this up, well, it happens." Try again. Right. And what can we learn from what didn't work? Right. Right. Throwing everything against the wall, feeling innovative. It's part of the um the lean startup mentality, which is an organization and a book by Eric Reese. And in it, that's where the mantra like fail fast came from. And this idea of failing fast really embraces the innovative power of trying things and to test your assumptions. So when I started Bossed Up, I had recently read that book and set off to test my assumptions and see what worked and what didn't. So you could actually lean into that failure to be cliche about it and see, okay, the data says that uh, one-on-one coaching through Bossed Up was not selling. And you know, boot camps, these events were selling. So guess what? I pivoted away from what was an early failure and focused on doubling down on what was an early success. And that's proven to be very helpful. And And continuously challenging your assumptions in a business model is one thing, but being comfortable with your personal <laughs> career failings is is can be way more challenging. Because, well, what if you had said, you know, I'm I'm doing one-on-one coaching. It's not working out, but this was my plan and I'm doing like what if you had not pivoted? Right. You know, and you it being able to take a step back and say maybe I got it wrong on this right. and maybe there's a, a way to, you know, make this more successful. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah, and there's also a case for persevering. So mm-hmm. the the challenge always comes down to pivot or persevere. And I think of famous failures like Michael Jordan who was cut from his high school basketball team. Had he not persevered, we wouldn't have had Michael Jordan, you right. know? So you have to make that decision for yourself of 
um, what do I want to focus on for growth and what do I want to pivot away from? Um, and that's okay, right? Like only you can really make that decision. Right. Should we take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a quick break. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about, including some of the research around why women in particular can struggle with perfectionism. The the dirty P word in this? <laughs> yes. It's not the F word? <laughs> the dirty P. Maybe... Maybe the F word? I'm going to stop saying that. Let's not say that. All right, we'll be right back. I'm going to get it together. And we're back. And I didn't get it together because I still want to say the dirty P word. But I, I think it's important that we acknowledge how gender plays a role in failure, in making it hard to own our failures, or in another way of looking at sort of on the flip side uh, girls and women and perfectionism, which is so personal to me because I've totally struggled with perfectionism my whole life. Yeah, and you're you're very clearly not alone, according to the research. And so women are much more likely than men to be perfectionists in both their family lives, personal lives, and in their work lives. Um, a study by the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology uh, found that women, you know, uh, a higher percentage of women feel like they don't meet their own very high standards when it comes to family or workplace commitments. And right. so women are putting very high standards on themselves and then really being very hard on them when they're unable to meet these impossibly hard standards. Does this sound familiar to you? So familiar. In fact, I'm just thinking of a recent attendee at this past weekend's Boss Up Boot Camp. In her application, she said to me, listen... I honestly am coming to this boot camp because I feel like I'm doing mediocre in all aspects of my life right now. <sighs> and I was just thinking, of course, women need to be perfect in all aspects of our lives at every time. Right. And of course, that kind of role overload is what we are dealing with. But her underlying assumption there is that she shouldn't be mediocre in all aspects of her life at any time. When I'm thinking, maybe kill it in one area of your life right, right. now. And be, I, I've, I've learned over the years and still am trying to embrace being mediocre at some things. So so as to be great at one thing. Right. But only one thing at a time. But you can't be, I mean, maybe some people are, not me, but it's, I would imagine it'd be hard to be killing it at all aspects, you know, your romantic life, your professional life, your educational life, your family life, like nobody does your that. fitness life, all the things. Who does that? Or who can? I can't. Well, the internet makes it seem like everybody does that. And I think that's <laughs> such a, you hit on something that I think is so important is that social media, I think, plays a huge role in this where, you know, I... This, that's something that I struggle with a little bit where it seems like all my friends, you know, they post about their big promotion or yeah. killing it at work. Nobody posts about the time when they cried in the bathroom at work, but we've done it. You know, right. no one posts about the time where right. they, you know, had to, you know, call their dad, you know, asking for advice on basic stuff they should know. Like no, nobody posts about that. Right. And I think that it's very easy to think everyone's crushing it because that's what it looks like. Right. And so if you're not crushing it, you're alone and something's wrong with you and you're bad. Um, and I think, you Perfectly know, said. yeah. And I think the research really does show that one, this is something that women deal with especially. And then two, the drive to be perfect starts from a very young age, which I found sad. really sad. I mean, according to this study by Girl Guiding UK, a quarter of women or young girls from age 7 to 10 felt the need to be perfect. And I just think that that word perfection, that just, you know, kind of broke my heart a little bit that these very young girls, school age girls already feel that that drive that they have to have everything together all the time. Yeah, I think the idea of good girl culture is very 
very real. And there was a great article about this in the New York Times um, that was titled, For Girls, It's Be Yourself and Be Perfect Too. So there's this idea of saying, you know, little girls are expected to be the um, embodiment of perfection and innocence and poise and sweetness and smarts and this. And, and it's all getting leveled on top of women's changing roles. Mm. So if you think about historically, we, we thought, you know, to be a good woman has meant very different things over the decades and over the, the millennia of time. But instead of saying now women should just be one way or just be another, right. all of our changing roles that we've been balancing from breadwinner to homemaker and everything in between have been added on top that's impossible. Yeah. And that's part of the overwhelm and the, the discussion of overwhelm in today's society, which I find really fascinating. It, it definitely hits women differently than how we condition boys to be and men to be. Yeah. And I think um, so one of the places I saw this really expertly broken down is in this book by Jessica Bacall, um, Mistakes I Made at Work. And really, this is the title is exactly what it sounds like. It's her. And she talks to very influential women in media, health, science, tech, all across these industries, and they're just talking about these big screw-ups at work and what they learned from them, how they handled them. And I really think that it's it's that kind of work that changes, that can help change this perception for women that you have to be perfect and killing it and on all cylinders all the time, otherwise yeah. you're falling behind. And it just really allows for a more... Um, a more realistic ver- a view of how we think about women at work. Yeah, I love it because it's really an anthology of short stories that she edited and she sort of sets up for for each different chapter. So if you're looking for a quick read, pre- you know, this is a great one because it's one of those books you can t- pick up and put down whenever you want. And I loved hearing from famous women who have historically been known for their successes getting very real and very specific about how they dealt with their challenges. Who's the author of um, that you know, she was played by Reese Witherspoon in the hiking movie. The oh, um, Cheryl. Sh- Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. Yeah. So Cheryl Strayed writes in there. And I had just finished and loved Wild, Cheryl Strayed's book. Uh, and in in Jessica Bacall's book, Mistakes I Make at Work, Cheryl told this very beautiful story of how an editor had once sent her a short story back. And as a writer, you've got to get used to failure. It's like part of how you deal. Definitely. You, you know, the fam- most famous books of all times were rejected by 25 publishers. Like J.K. Rowling mm-hmm. was rejected time and time and time and She's time again. She's such a good example. She is. Because the first, I think the first Harry Potter book she sold for pennies. And it's just such a great, you know, overcoming that is is where resilience comes from. But um, to go back to Cheryl, she wrote about how an uh, a publication, I think it was a big magazine, came back to her and said, sure, we love it, but you need to cut it in half. You need to cut the word count down. And this is someone who, as an artiste, as a writer, you know, there's this idea that you've polished your work to perfection. And she had, she'd labored over this thing until it had been edited down till every point of it was like the essence of what this short story needed to be. And she thought to herself, I'm an artist. I can't butcher my work for the dollar that this person is offering me. And then she said, you know what? I'm an artist and I need not only do I need the money, but as an artist, it's part of my craft to be able to reshape the work. And so she got out of her creative head. Maybe I'm also drawing the story from her other book on shoot. Actually, Bridget, I think this might. Am I getting this mixed up with Elizabeth Gilbert? Is this an on-air <laughs> work mistake? 
You guys, um, listeners, let me level with you for a second. I think I just made an error myself. I'm not even kidding. I'm misremembering. I don't remember if this is Elizabeth Gilbert in her great book, Big Magic, which is about the writing process and creativity in, in creative fields altogether, or Cheryl Strayed, the author of Wild in Jessica Bacall books. But regardless, the point stands. Whichever brilliant writer this was, she told a really wonderful and relatable story about having to edit down what she felt was a masterpiece already just to get it published and get that get that money, get that dollar. So here I am trying to walk the walk in mid-air, mid-time, <laughs> mid-podcast recording. Be kind to me, Twitter. It's hard for you. I mean, this is, you don't want to get caught in a trap of perfectionism. I'm like, oh my God, I'm flushed right now. You are, yeah. If you, could, you, see, if my you could see her, she, this is a... I am sweating. You're really illustrating you the point of like, mistakes. You want to be perfect and it doesn't always happen. And even in a, a setting like this, you know, it happens. I'm cringing because I feel like this is going to read like a setup. We did not plan this, listeners. We did not plan this. <laughs> Although it, We're would, not it would be smart. brilliant if you did. Like, that would have been so I am, smart. I'm like, actually sweating, though. Yeah, I can't you... handle this. So here's, you know why I'm, now that I'm basking in failure right now, you know why I get so flushed? You know why it feels so lousy? Why is because that? I feel like this is my thing. Like, I want to be able to talk about this and, and have your credibility. And this is part of, you know, I want to have your credibility because I take my work seriously. Right. Because I take my profession seriously, and that's when it hurts the most, is when you care. Yeah. When you really care, you pour yourself into it, and you know that other people's judgment does matter. Totally. This is really is like a, playing out like a case study, is that because you couldn't remember if you read this you know, fascinating t- factoid in this book or that book, that doesn't mean that you, you know... Are doing a bad job right. because, because you're not your mistake, right? Like you, I feel better, Bridget. Thank yeah, <laughs> on air coaching. I should offer some one-on-one coaching. You should. I like it. <laughs> what you've just said, I think, is is, is so uh, resonates so much for me. So one of the stories in the book of failure, um, it's not the name of the book, but <laughs> the, book the big book of failure, um, is a medical doctor. Which again, I mean, I think medical doctors, I can't even imagine, or people who are in the medical profession, I can't even imagine the level of. Um, anxiety they must have around mistakes because you could kill someone, right? If I tweet a swear word from a, an right. account I shouldn't do, no one's going to die. But if you're a doctor and you make a mistake, or a nurse and you make a mistake, or a you know a, a caregiver and you make a mistake, someone's life is in your hands. And yeah. there was a, a wildly popular TED talk that people watched and shared like millions of times about doctors and mistakes. And I think you know. Even someone in that high stakes, high pressure field talking about their mistakes, I think is, is, is valuable. And it maybe even seems scary, right? Yeah. The idea that, yeah, your doctor could make a mistake because guess what? We all make mistakes and, human. yeah, we need to accept that, that doctors aren't, you know, robots. Yeah, I mean, but tell that to someone whose family member died on the table. Yeah. You know? it's, 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 it's like, how do you even? It's so heavy. So this doctor talks a little bit about how she almost missed, um, a very, a very obvious, um, you know, warning sign. Uh, someone, this was at the height of the AIDS epidemic, and she was overwhelmed with patients and just sort of tired and frazzled. And she thought one of her patients was just a little bit out of it. And that it turns out that later she had missed a massive brain bleed, which could have killed him if he had been sent home. And so what she says that she learned from this mistake was, mistakes aren't this external thing, this adverse event. We make a mistake, but we are not the mistake. Mm. And then she also talks a little bit about guilt and shame. You know, um, when you make a mistake, the distinction between guilt and shame 
Guilt, she says, is regret for a certain action. But right. shame is deeper and more painful. It's the realization that you're not the person you thought you were. The point is that it's okay to feel guilty about making a mistake, but we shouldn't be ashamed. That's such a great point. And Brene Brown is known for her research on shame. And and she also hammered that home. It's the distinction between externalizing and internalizing failure. So as best as we can, when we're in the heat of that, I'm ashamed for not being as, you know, as well-researched as I thought I was or as smart as I thought I was or I thought I was a, a, a I thought I was someone who had a good memory. I thought I was someone who really knows my stuff. Like, instead of saying, wow, I'm not the boss I thought I, I was or I'm not as good as I thought I was, saying... I, you know, this, these two things are really similar. Here's what happened. Here's the explanation. Here's the story I'm going to tell myself that externalizes the, um, the mistake and, and doesn't say that you are a human being who is mistaken. Right. I think Brene talked about it by saying it's the difference between saying I'm not good at math versus I didn't study enough for this. Right. Where, you know, it's okay to feel, you know, oh, I wish I would have studied, but right. internalizing it is I'm not I'm the bad. person I thought I was. I thought I was good and I am bad. And you know whose research really hit home on that particular distinction is Carol Dweck. That's D-W-E-C-K. Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, came out way back, I think in the 1970s, I want to say. And it was revolutionary because she distinguished between what she calls a growth mindset and a fixed trait mindset. And this was revolutionary for me. The book holds up, you know, through the ages. So I highly recommend it um, to anyone who's listening. But the growth set mindset. What did I just say? No, the growth mindset. I'm really like demonstrating failure <laughs> really well today. I'm just doing you all my I'm just trying to do my due diligence here to, to show you what it looks like to screw up on air. No big deal. But growth mindset is the ability to um, learn from your mistakes by seeing errors, missteps, mistakes as an opportunity for growth and to see all people everyone as having the potential to grow and learn and improve. A fixed trait mindset is, I'm just not good at math, or I'm not a great public speaker, or I was born with certain traits and without certain other traits. Right. And no matter what I do, no matter how much effort I put into it, I cannot improve. And you'd be surprised how many of us were raised one way or the other and how much that impacts your risk tolerance moving mm, forward. That is such a good point. I, I see that so much in my personal life. I mean, my, my own personal um you know, growth with failure. I hear a lot about young women growing up who feel like they're not allowed to fail and they have to be perfect. That's so far from where I was <laughs> growing up. I mean, I was sort of a... Um, I mean, this is making me sound awful, but I was just the girl who was like, you know, I lived really close to school and I was late every day, right? I was the girl who was like, I I became very comfortable with failure and mistakes pretty early on. And it almost was kind of freeing. Like, I I never, I never feel like I got down on myself about it. I, I, in fact, kind of enjoyed a level of freedom to try things and abandon things and screw up at things and, you know, do things and not really internalize it because I, I, I kind of got this, it, it, people just, it just sort of was like, oh, that's how she is. Like she will try things and then be like, oh, it didn't work. Whoops. And, you know, not, you know, and just move on to the next thing. And I saw my, you know, my friends who struggled so badly trying, you know, whether it was sports and things like that. Like I just never, I was just sort of known as the girl who, you know, did you were easy going. I was pretty easy going about my failure. Yeah. And I, and I watched a lot of my classmates 
really not be that way yeah. and really have a hard time with it. Yeah. You're describing <laughs> me. Yeah. I think that's part of the the appeal to you and I, by the way. What's that? I think that's that not that we're all exactly who we were in fifth grade sure. or whatever, but your easygoing nature, may, might I call it type B? Yeah, nature? I am, I am so sad. I might be type C. I'm so solidly type B. I think meshes beautifully with my sometimes overwhelmingly uptight type A-ness that I think, I've, I think we've both got our stuff together. Yeah. But I also think that we come to this project, we come to this podcast with very different strengths. And one thing I love about working with you is how we balance each other out in that way. I think that's I think that's so true. I remember being in school and getting some sort of art project assignment where the teacher was like, "Oh, don't if you don't cut don't do it this way because if you do it's going to mess up." Ugh. And the girl sitting next to me did exactly the wrong thing and like hit, had clearly like hidden her paper so no one is saw it. Is this art? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What topic is this? This is art. I think we were making oh, um my Lord. like snowflakes or something where if you cut along the wrong side of the paper, your snowflake would be destroyed. Yeah, what a disgusting um, snowflake yeah. you have, little who's gonna, child. Who's going to hang that on their tree? Yeah, I hate your snowflake kid. <laughs> and I just I saw so many of my classmates do it wrong and be really stressed out about it. But then it, others do it wrong and they're like, eh, I did it wrong, you know, and you can really see how these things well, present themselves early on. Oh my gosh, so true. Carol Dweck tested this with children. One of her groundbreaking studies with, was with grade school age children, giving them puzzles. And it was fascinating to see they would give you incrementally more difficult puzzles. And once you would start to struggle with the challenging puzzles, they would give you an option. Do you want to go back? And do the same easier puzzle over again that you just did? Or would you like another puzzle? And some of the kids would say, ooh, I love a challenge. Bring Mm. it on. And relish the opportunity. One kid even said, I hoped I was going to learn something today. And then a lot of the kids, like type A little fifth grade Emily would have said, said, I'll just do the other puzzle over again so I can feel like I'm good at puzzles. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, I would have been like, do you have any finger paint? Yeah. (laughs) Puzzles are boring. Yeah. Right. But that's so fascinating. I mean, yeah. And it just shows you how you miss the opportunity to learn when you want to play it safe. Mm. And I've seen this play out in my adult life, too. And you've wanted to stay away from the potential for failure and therefore you stay in the lane you think you know, the domain you feel comfortable in already, and you never grow. Yeah. And it validates your I'm a good girl, re- you know, response, because you want that gold sticker, you want that, that validation. that feels good. It feels that good to be does told. Feel yeah. good. But what we need to do, and this is Carol Dweck's like research applied in the form of parenting and teaching, and the whole mindset space is pretty huge, is reinforce and reward learning even if it's through failure or success. So what did you learn? Not like you get you got me A's, all oh, I'm going to reward your A's, right. which is definitely how my household was run. And you know, no no shade out there for the parents and cuz there's I feel like there's enough pressure sure. for how to be a perfect yes. parent that this becomes very meta. But I just found that growth mindset stuff fascinating and its applications across shame and personal life, professional life and beyond. So I think you hit on something really important, which is how we should be responding when folks, if, you, if you're a manager or if you, you know, are managing folks, how you should be responding, um, you know, when they make mistakes and how, how you can sort of help normalize, you know, culture of mistake making as learning processes. Um, and I think we should talk about those after we take a quick break. And 
we're back. We're just getting worked up talking about our mistakes and failure and really how a lot of it, like many things in life, tend to be a bit gendered. And so women are really getting the short end of the stick when it comes to um, being allowed and given the space to fail in, fail gracefully in work scenarios. And what's interesting about this is I think it really is important to talk about how gender makes a difference. And so as we were just saying, women are sort of, you know, more likely to be perfectionists. And part of that, I think, is this idea of the glass cliff. And so the glass cliff is this idea that women, they feel like their mistakes are sort of magnified. And so they're not sort of given room to make these kinds of mistakes in a way that is fair, right? Like if you're a woman, in a, especially in a male-dominated space or a woman of color, if you make a mistake, it feels like that mistake is heightened and magnified. And it kind of, you can kind of get this anxiety around being seen as someone that's, you know, constantly making mistakes or incompetent or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, the glass cliff is, it's also grounded in social science around minority versus majority environments. So anyone who's a minority in a majority environment, it might be men in the occupation of the OBGYN field, for instance, or women in leadership anywhere, really, and especially women of color, um, because of your heightened visibility, um, this also is similarly, it's actually related to something in the research called stereotype threat. So when you have heightened visibility based on your minority status in any group, when you make a mistake, you feel like you are often, you know, and you have this fear, rightly so, because people often do this. People are seeing your mistakes as emblematic of your race or your gender or your the entire minority group you're representing. Mm-hmm. So when you're the only black woman, let's say, at the in the boardroom, and God forbid you make a mistake in such a publicly visible arena, you are uh, not only more likely to be seen as, you know, oh, here goes another you know, insert whatever racial stereotype or gender stereotype you want there making mistakes, but you're also given less, uh, what is the word? Less benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. less freedom to make mistakes because you're not only more visible, but you're also, you know, just it's not seen as another white dude who's making a, a, an average everyday mistake. Totally. And I've seen that play out so many times, like time and time and time again. And I think it, part of it is this idea that I believe that for white male employees, there's a lot of like giving them the benefit of the doubt and not assuming malintent. Yes. And I think that women, people of color do not get that same, that same, you know, that same leeway. Men are often promoted based on their potential alone. Exactly. Whereas women and minority folks or people of color really more, more largely are promoted on their past experience. And I even think, I know I mentioned before, you know, being in a Silicon Valley startup that I felt like I got this leeway yeah. to fail and all of that. But even that can be kind of gendered in those environments and that like, who is it that gets that freedom? It's usually white men and white men pretty much, you know, run yeah. Silicon Valley. And so being invited into that space as a woman or a person of color is incredible, can be incredibly tricky to navigate. Yeah, it can be anxiety provoking. So what, let's talk about what women, you know, the average women at work can do in light of you know, we're, tr- we're telling, we're telling you some mixed messages here, aren't we? We're saying, don't be afraid. Let's normalize failure. Let's, let's lean into the discomfort of failing. Let's not Im- internalize our work mistakes. But at the same time, we're operating in an environment that doesn't treat women's mistakes with the same amount of empathy and, you know, understanding as always is given to 
uh, non-women. You know mm. what I mean? So all we really want is to be seen as individuals, not be seen as, oh, she's making a mistake. There goes another woman <laughs> making a mistake on behalf of her entire gender. And that's being seen as something indicative of my race or gender. Right. So what can we women do in light of this tough situation? Well, one thing is um, don't obsess over your mistake. I think that really goes back to this idea of guilt versus shame, right? Mm. If you make a mistake, it's okay. It's natural to feel guilty, to feel bad about it. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be thrilled with yourself, but you d- shouldn't, you know, go over and over and over it in your head, play it out for years and years. I mean, some of the stories that are in um, Bacall's book are mistakes that people made when they were young and that they that stuck with them they you know they still mull it over years oh, and years and years yeah. it's like when you say the wrong thing at a party back in like 1999 and you're still replaying that cringy conversation in 2017 which i do <laughs> i'm sweating again the cringe is real the cringe is real so don't you know don't obsess over it at a certain point you know right. you got to let it go you got to move on and i think one of uh one of uh carol dweck's pieces of advice is it's really about changing the voice in your head. It's hard to silence the voice in your head. It's hard to say, stop beating yourself up about this. You know, it's hard to say, mute yourself, mute your voice in your head, because we all have that inner critic. Instead, talk back. Hmm. Talk back to your inner critic. When your inner critic is saying, Emily, you're the worst, what made you think you were able to sing the national anthem without forgetting all the words at your senior night volleyball game? (laughs) Did that really happen? It so really happened that I'm sweating about it, sitting about it. And I feel like a bad patriot, but really it was just stage fright. And there's like 20 people in the whole world who might know what I'm talking about if they listen to this. Oh. But you know how awkward that was. If you know, please yeah. write into the show. Let us know, you know. No, I don't want to relive it anymore. Because we're not obsessing on forgetting the words of the National Anthem. Anyway, uh, which is why I've had so much empathy for every artist who's ever gone up there and kind of messed up the words. A oh, bit. you're like, oh, give her a break. Yeah, you're like, it happens even to the most devoted patriots out there. I love this country. Anyway, uh, the moral of the story here, I'm sweating. Okay. The moral of the story here is to talk back to that voice. And instead of saying you're a bad singer or you're a bad patriot, say you just didn't practice the words often enough. You didn't have the words in front of you. Tell yourself a story that explains what you could have done differently. What you could have done differently is learning. That's what that's the process of learning. Identifying what led to the mistake is where you actually glean some knowledge through the mistake instead of. I'm a bad person, I'm a bad this, I'm a ba- I'm just bad at math, or I'm just bad at writing, or whatever it might be. Identify what you could do differently next time. And that is what I learned from organizing, through the the form of what you probably know, pluses and deltas. Or roses and thorns. Roses as we- and thorns. <laughs> Tell us about that. So basically, at the end of a training, you know, you... Uh, the way that we would do it in, in the organizing context is you get a big piece of butcher paper and you lift up roses or pluses. These are things that went great. And then you lift up thorns or deltas, things that could have been better, could have been, you know, things that were not so great. Yeah. And really, that has been a really helpful tool in my my political work because there, when you have a training... Things are going to go badly. Things are going to be not be great. Any kind of event that you're putting together. And honestly, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I used to live in fear for the roses and del- the pluses and I'm already messing it up. The, the roses and thorns, 
pluses and deltas part of a training. I used to like live in fear of this. Really? But by the end, it, I would say like, yeah, that did happen. Or yeah, that would have been great. Or yeah, I am bad at this aspect of training and could get better at it, you know? Well, what I love about the word delta too, or the, the process of pluses and deltas is that A, it's communal. Mm-hmm. You're not doing this alone. You're doing it in community. So there's always a conversation. I think when we bring solitude or silence to our mistakes, we bring shame to them. Yeah. So when we're actually able to have an audible out loud conversation about mistakes, it feels relieving and and comforting. So there's lots of uses of of deltas, but it's that little triangle, which in mathematics stands for variation or variable. Mm. And so what we're actually talking about is change. What would we change next time? Mm. What might we do differently? Not what sucked. I love that. And not what did you fail at and not what are you terrible at, but it's Next time, what might we try differently? And because it's communal, because it's framed in that way, it feels like there is some actionable learning there. Yeah, I'll never forget doing a training where, by no fault of my own, the training space air conditioner wasn't working. And this was in D.C. in the middle of July, so it was very hot. And we had to move. We had one day in there. And, you know, we were in this room all day, and it's hot and it's muggy. And eventually, like, someone passed out. And it was really bad. Oh, no. And when we were doing plus, pluses and deltas, one of the deltas was... It would be nice to not have participants passing out. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, yeah, I would change that next time. I would change that. Well, see, what you're saying, you're talking about an outcome. Right. So this was the bad outcome. But really, I would, you know, I hope someone pushed you further to be like, well, what might we do differently mm-hmm. to make sure no one passes out? Because focusing on the bad outcome, while so natural of our brains to say, here's what the bad outcome was, we really have to think about what did we, how did we, what effort did we not put in enough of right. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm not being very articulate today. No, no, I know what you mean. I'm really, like, stuck in my failure brain today, apparently, but I'm just trying to... You're back on the volleyball field in, like, uh, 1999. I'm just trying to live the podcast. That's all. So So what else? Um, Yeah, yeah, another way is, I think I said this before, just know that you're not your mistake, right? Mm. Don't internalize it. You, you know, it's easy to think, oh, I'm, I'm not the person I thought I was, or I'm not good at this, not good at that. You don't, you know, again, tell yourself that story that you, maybe you are good at math or you have the potential to be good at math. You just didn't study for that one test or whatever. And honestly, I almost want to assign Mindset by Carol Dweck as required reading for every like sixth grader out there or every, definitely every educator out there. Because if you're in a position also as someone's supervisor or parent or sister or whatever who's messing up, when you witness someone else's mistake... You can tell them one of two stories. You know, Michael, little Michael Jordan, maybe basketball's not your sport. Mm. You know, as his high school coach must have probably thought. And when he got cut from the team, you might want to just say, maybe you should focus on something different because this is painful and scary and I don't want to talk about it. And failure brings up failure. Like, failure in you brings up failure in me and I can't handle it. Or... You might say, well, you know, do you want to continue? What might you do differently next time? Like, how did you prepare? Do you want to talk about this? Like, do you want to process this? Because I'm here if you want to talk about it. And, you know, pointing to past successes is another good strategy for dealing with someone else's mistake. If they're if they're screwing up, whether this is you or someone that works for you, perhaps, you know, pointing to a time when they were successful in the past and then leaning in with curiosity to discuss you know, what led to this mistake. Right. Not, why are you such an idiot? <laughs> yeah, and I think to go back to my my example of my, my you know, social media mess up at, at in a media company, that's what I thought was so 
glaringly wrong in that situation. So we, you know, we... I what had a, did happen? I mean, I, I tweeted something that was meant for my... No, 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 but what happened after the mistake? Oh, I mean, I got I got chewed out by my boss, um, and she made me feel... I mean, no, no, she, she, she's probably not listening to this. This wasn't even that long ago, <laughs> but go. she, I got chewed out by my like boss and there was no, I mean, I, I felt horrible about it. I felt terrible. And I, there was no sense of the fact that it wasn't just my mess up, that there were, there should have been fail safes mm. in place. And there was no sense of the fact that like, yeah, I'm one person. I've been working. I've been on for a very long time. I'm doing this at 1 a.m. I have, I'm, I'm not being supported or set up to do my best work. Right. Not that it wasn't my fault, because it totally was, but there was no, it just seemed like we treated it like this anomaly that I did, and that mm-hmm. it meant like, oh, you're not cut out to work in news or media. And I think about that moment a lot, because I think that if, if it had been, you know, working in a social media environment, mistakes are going to happen, here's what we do when they, when they happen, that would have been better, because all my teammates were like, oh, yeah, the same thing happened to me. I did the same thing. And that was the first time I was like, oh, everyone's messing up at this job. Everyone has made a mistake at this job. Mm-hmm. And before that conversation, I was like, oh, it just happened to me. I was you know, I was the person that was messed up. I, you know, I was broken or not cut out Ugh, or this and that. Yeah. And that's such a good reminder when you are dealing with someone else who's made a mistake. One of the ways you can make them feel better is to talk about your the mistakes you've made in the past and how you've overcome them. Right. You can actually say, listen... This happens. I just did this a year ago, and it was the worst feeling in the world. You're probably feeling terrible right now, and I want you to know this is not, you know, this is, we're all human. We all make mistakes, and I think the fact that we've made this mistake a few times now indicates that we got to do do some right. things differently. So let's focus on what we can do differently. That's so, that's, you just nailed it, because it's about not, making it not about the individual right. and saying, like, well, clearly this is something that happens, and how can we... Learn from right. this that this keeps happening and not being like, oh, what's wrong mm. with you that you did this and making it so yeah. internal. The last thing I want to say on this podcast, however, and I, I know we're like flipping back and forth here and in, in advice, but I I don't want to I don't want anyone to be confused about owning your mistakes in in uh, place of owning your achievements. Mm. I don't think we should judge women who own their achievements vocally and, right. and out loud. And I don't think we should downplay our, our achievements and only talk about our mistakes in a self-deprecating way. I think, yes, it's okay to be human. We should be acknowledged that we're all human and we make mistakes. But as women especially, we should we shouldn't judge each other or feel... Like, we can't express when we're killing it yeah. as well. Like, I don't want your mistakes on your resume, ladies. Right. You know, and I think we all know that. Totally. But. And I think it's, I, for me, I think it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Like, you should be, if a woman is talking about a failure publicly, you should not be like, oh, well, women are crappy Terrible. at this. Yeah. And if a woman is talking about her successes, you shouldn't be like, oh, well, women, this woman is right. full of herself. Right. I think it's, as women and as feminists, I think it's always about being able to be, to give to be, to be given that space to be full authentic our, our full authentic selves and whether that means killing it or whether that means crying in the bathroom we are full multifaceted people and just being given the space to be those people human beings and human beings i mean it's it goes without saying but obviously we want to give people of all genders that free them just because <laughs> no men no, no men, kidding men can't mis- <laughs> make mistakes but it's but it's true like the whole spectrum of gender we all just want to be seen as human beings who are fallible and and still worthy completely i love it and for lots of famous failures and women's brilliant stories who 
really provides some inspiring insights to I, I'm I'm thinking about Vera Wang, how she became a successful, insanely successful designer after being uh, a figure skater who failed to make it to the Olympics. What? You know, yeah, did I you didn't know, know this. Oh yeah, there's some really fascinating, like the J.K. Rowling story, Ariana Huffington. They, you look into these women's backgrounds and. You'll realize, and Jessica Bacall's book is a great place to get started. You'll realize rather quickly that the overnight success story that America seems to be so obsessed with is far from, in my opinion, the most worthwhile story to read. Like that narrative of triumphing in the face of challenge is much more interesting to me. Yeah, same. And motivating. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we beat failure. (laughs) I think we kicked it enough times. Hopefully, uh, listeners, you tell us what you think. I'm sure you'll help us point out our failures on occasion. I have to tell you, starting being a podcast co-host has been a very humbling. Oh, if you want to, if you want people to help you lovingly discover places where you need help, improvement, become a podcaster. And so we really, I mean, I clearly love talking failures. So if you want to hear about your, your failures, you can, you know, send us an email or tell us about a time where things didn't go well or how you handled it when someone on your team that you managed failed. You know, mm. I want to hear about all of your relationships to failure. What, what does that relationship look like for you? So you can reach out to us on Instagram if you want to take a picture of maybe a, you're a baker and your cake turned out crappy. I don't know. Oh, Get I creative. Like yeah. <laughs> Instead of the highlight reel, let's put some low lights yeah, on. Yeah, bloopers I reel. It. I like it. <laughs> So you can hit us up on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can hit us up on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast or send us a good old-fashioned email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Hold up. 